Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special bonus edition of the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SUP China. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina Access and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Making his long-awaited return to Seneca is the man himself, that suave and debonair South African they call the Fabio of Joburg, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, who joins us from New York. Jeremy, please say hello. <laughs> Ciao, bello. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. But today we're not going to be talking about my alleged beauty, but about the novel coronavirus that emerged probably in Wuhan and continues to ravage Hubei province, spreading to the rest of China and to other countries. Today, we are absolutely delighted to welcome as our guest, Yan Zhong Huang, who is a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he directs the Global Health Governance Roundtable series. He's also a professor at Seton Hall University's School of Diplomacy and International Relations, so you can see how he would have been very much in demand during this crisis, so we're very grateful that he could make some time to talk with us. Uh, he is, of course, a, both a global health expert who happens also to be an expert on international relations, so... It's a major element, of course, in the evolving story of the novel coronavirus. Personally, I found it very hard to get a read on so many of the central issues because you have to just claw your way through such a thicket of commentary, of rumor, of positive propagandistic spin, of unalloyed cynicism that just rejects any but the most critical reading of Beijing. So it's really great, Yin Zhong, that we could have you here to help us sort through all of this. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yan Zhong, let's get straight to a central question that has been occupying my mind and also causing me to get into arguments on Twitter, which is how does the fatality rate of this virus compare to SARS? And what about to H1N1 in 2009, swine flu? Well, we, we can certainly compare this to uh, in terms of the virulence and in terms of the uh, transmission. And the virulence... Wise, the, uh, the H1N1, the, uh, in 2009, really very mild. It's actually even milder than seasonal influenza. Uh, so despite those and uh, the number of cases, number of deaths worldwide, uh, it's actually not comparable even to the 
number of cases and death of the seasonal influenza. Mm. The WHO announced it as a global pandemic, but uh, it turned out that uh, you know with all those. Money, the resources we were spending, it, uh, I, I found this, in hindsight, it was an overreaction. <laughs> the, uh, well, the current outbreak, um, the coronavirus, well, we still, there's still a lot we don't know, including its virulence. If you look at the government-provided data, uh, it seems that it has a virulence constant uh, which seems to be a constant every day, that is 2.1%, which is certainly lower, uh, much lower than the uh, SARS, although uh, higher than the H1N1 uh, uh, virus in 2009. So uh, 2.1% compared to about a 10% death rate for SARS in 2003, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, to be accurate, it's 9.6% for SARS. Okay, 9.6% for SARS. Uh, Yanzhong, how confident can we be that this rate is going to stay the same? Because it is still early days, isn't it? <laughs> Good question. I'm uh, actually wondering the same thing. Because if you uh, like it, this is a simple math, right? You just divide the number of deaths by the confirmed cases, right? Uh, it seems that uh, if uh, the government data provided is that uh, these, the, this number seems to be constant every day. Uh, and uh, uh, yesterday, there's the leading Chinese scientist uh, seems to imply uh, this, this, the, uh, the denominator, that's the confirmed cases, uh, seems to be underestimated because a lot of people who are tested negative uh, could still be included as confirmed cases simply because these clinical symptoms are just so similar to this, uh, the, the, uh, that of the coronavirus. Mm, I see. So you think that the denominator has actually been overestimated so that the virulence might actually be higher? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh, we'll see. Uh, but the, this is just one aspect of the, uh, the, the vi- virus. But you, you should also look at the, uh, the transmission also. Uh, usually we use the so-called r naught, the reproductive number of the virus, to measure right, the, the, uh, how contagious the virus is. Uh, so for SARS, uh, it is it's between two and five. That means a person who is infected on average could infect two to five secondary cases. And uh, for uh, this virus, uh, the, according to the Chinese scientists, you know, the article published in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the r naught uh, is 2.2, I believe. Uh, so uh, that seems to be not really that high as compared to SARS, although their data, their conclusion seems to be provi- uh, based on data, uh, those cases that collected by January 23rd. So it is very likely also they underestimate the transmission rate of the coronavirus. Okay, I see. So right now, this this idea that it's about a two point two 
is only based on cases up to, collected up to January 23rd, you said, right? That's correct. Okay. Well, how much comfort can we take in, in the fact that so far, touch wood, there have been only a handful of fatalities outside of China and that all of the ones that we have seen are pretty directly tied to the city of Wuhan? Mm-hmm. Well, the well, well that's well, it's it's now the, the the most people would agree that the, the Wuhan is probably the ground zero of the, uh, the the virus. Although the origin of the virus, you know, this is uh, still undetermined. You know, some many people suspect this is the animal source. You know, that uh, the bats or snakes, you know, could be uh, the the source of the problem. But this now the social media also speculate that uh, uh, this could uh, uh, be caused by uh, by a safety accident that uh, points to that Wuhan Institute of Virology. Right, right. I've read that. Yanzhong, can I ask you about that theory um, that yeah. the virus somehow escaped from the Wuhan lab? I'm not asking you if that did happen. But is that something that could happen? Does the story pass the smell test? Yeah, we have to hear, you know, that uh, there's lots of rumors, actually. Some say this is a biological weapon the U.S. made uh, against China. And then in the U.S., you have this rumor uh, mongers saying, you know, this is a biological weapon uh, made by China against the United States. You know, that uh, the... Uh, that uh, social media account of that uh, the, the guy <laughs> I forgot his name uh, his account was revoked. Uh, uh, the but uh, you know you basically have this uh, uh, people uh, advocates of conspiracy theory from both sides. But here, well, they both they all focus on this as like a biological warfare. You know, I think uh, this is just impossible. You know that uh, neither the United States or China. Uh, they may have the capability, but I don't think they have the incentive, you know, to make biological weapons or even genetic weapons. Because remember when uh, Richard Nixon decided to give up a uh, uh, U.S. biological weapons program, uh, he uh, said something that was very impressive. He said, you know, why do we need the biological weapons, you know, if we have <laughs> nuclear weapons? So anybody there use uh, biological weapons, uh, we're going to nuke them. <laughs> so, uh, the, 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 this, so I do uh, not think that China faces any biosecurity th- uh, threat in terms of, you know, uh, the biological weapons, you know, uh, launched by another country. Uh, but uh, we cannot rule out this possibility of a biosafety accident. You know? So this is a two th- different things, right? The, the two different things, biosecurity and biosafety. And the, the, uh, the social media tend to like, confuse this too. Uh, biosafety accident is possible. We have seen that before. Right. In, uh, after the SARS outbreak in uh, 2004, there are several cases of the, this leakage of the, the virus from the labs uh, in Beijing and in Anhui. Yeah. So biosafety would be somebody transporting a, an actual uh, sample of the virus in a Petri dish or something like that and having it somehow contaminate another human. And then- mm-hmm. Yeah, if 
if a, 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 a lab worker is working on a, a virus, you know, and um, uh, then uh, cause the, 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 the leakage, you know, that, that was possible. But, you know, I'm still baffled because, you know, this is like a P4 lab, right? The supposedly, they, you know, they're dealing with the most dangerous pathogens. And by calling biosafety level 4 lab, you know, that means that this pathogen is not supposed to, you know, like uh, leaving the lab you know, because of the negative uh, pressure uh, in the, that the facility. Right. You know, so... You know that there got to be some really you know, some serious loopholes right in the lab. You know that could cause that problem. Hmm. Well, we've talked about the pathogens. Talk a little bit about potential cures. Um, it appears that there are some doctors in Wuhan who are getting good results treating people with an experimental drug uh, that was developed by Gilead Sciences. It's not yet approved by the SFDA in China. Uh, it's called Remdesivir, uh, and they're using it along with an anti-malarial drug called chloroquine, which has been on the market available for, for many, many decades. Uh, what are you hearing about this and other approaches? And where are we in terms of developing treatments or even vaccinations for against the, the Yeah, I think Gilead has that uh, um, that drug, antiviral drug. Yeah. Uh, that was used uh, to treat um, Ebola patients. And it was still in this experimental stage. Uh, but now the China has that problem. In my understanding is that uh, they offered uh, to uh, let China use that drug uh, without, uh, you know, that uh, uh, claiming, you know, this this, this the IP uh, rights here is sort of like a gift from Gilead, you know, that uh, it's, right. you know, I uh, heard, but well, there's some rumors say it was already been tested on Chinese patients and it was effective. Uh, I doubt it was going to be that speedy, <laughs> but uh, you know certainly I hope uh, you know that it works and uh, it uh, if uh, and it could be then put on the faster track in terms of getting approved. Then you know that uh, mass production and uh, distributed uh, to the uh, the people who need them. Hmm. Yeah, fingers crossed. Absolutely. Yan Zhong, it's impossible to avoid the political dimensions of this epidemic. I think most people recognize that there were serious mistakes made mm -hmm. in the early days. Um, although it's not entirely clear whether those mistakes were purely local at the Wuhan level or uh, at the central government level mm -hmm. in Beijing. In your estimation... How much of a threat to the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy are we talking about here? Yeah, I think uh, um, <laughs> you are right. This, um, uh, there were mistakes made. You know, like uh, now, I think uh, many people would agree, even many Chinese people, that uh, uh, social social media were criticizing. You know the uh, inaction, you know, the uh, lack of uh, risk communication, uh, that's uh, potential cover-up, these problems. But uh, interestingly, what we found here is like uh, each of those, you know, those key stakeholders uh, who's involved in this, the, the response were not admitting it was their fault, you know, like uh, uh, the finger pointing toward each other. And, and I, 
I do believe that the local governments uh, should take responsibility for not acting uh, in a timely manner and also for not sharing the disease-related information to the public in a timely fashion. Uh, and I also believe it is my understanding even the uh, central uh, health authorities, including uh, the China CDC, uh, they could have done a better job in terms of doing the diagnosis and uh, reporting that information. I mean, doing the correct diagnosis and reporting to that information uh, to the central leaders. Uh, so right. uh, people are unhappy with the local governments. Certainly, well, that legitimacy of the local governments are tarnished, uh, was tarnished. But uh, you know, in the in this what we call hierarchical legitimacy, so far we haven't seen any uh, like uh, fundamental challenge to the legitimacy of the central leaders or the, to the entire regime. Although there are you know, many people, even the those uh, ordinary Chinese, you know, seems to believe now that there's something uh, deeper, you know more fundamental <laughs> measures needs to be undertaken uh, in order to uh, avoid this tragedy being repeated again. That is my understanding, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. This reminds me very much of the uh, Sichuan earthquake, where in the first couple of weeks after the quake, uh, journalists, both uh, foreign and Chinese, were uh, allowed uh, relatively free reign to get around uh, Sichuan and to report. Uh, but that only lasted a, a few weeks. And then the usual heavy-handed repression and censorship began again. On the other hand, as much as I criticize the Communist Party for their constant lying, they are faced with a situation of actually trying to manage two epidemics at the same time. One, an actual pathogen, the other, an epidemic of panic. Uh, you've written recently about the danger of panic in this epidemic in an excellent piece in Think Global Health. Can you talk about this problem? Well, there, there are already people, yeah, there are already some people, including some legislators, uh, calling for a permanent ban of the white animals. Uh, my understanding is that uh, this, well, this, the, the government may, uh, very likely actually, they're going to uh, impose a permanent ban, but uh, enforcement will be a big challenge even for a country like China. You know, you have authoritarian leaders, you know, that uh, seems to be, uh, it seems that very uh, easy for them to impose their will on the uh, the state and, and the population. But, uh, you know, simply just, just like, like smoking, it's just you cannot have the people change their habits overnight, you know. And that reminded me that there's the, uh, the alcohol ban right, in the U.S. in 1930s, right? The, uh, uh, yeah, prohibition. You, know, yeah. you ban the alcohol, people start to make them at home, you know. So uh, it will be... a, a Big challenge, you know, unless the, the actually the government is willing uh, to um, pursue that policy like what they did in pursuing that one child per couple policy. 
In other words, with a lot of lot coercion, a lot of coercion, a lot of mobilization, a lot of institutional building, and then are、uh, having that norm be internalized, you know, by the Chinese、right. people. So I think、uh, they could,、uh, yeah, invest more in terms of making that system more、uh, responding,、um, like、uh, this web-based online reporting system. You know, this time, you know, apparently it didn't work. Uh, so uh, and this the recent Politburo meeting also said they're going to、uh, undertake measures to fix the loopholes, you know, in the、uh, disease prevention and control system. I ex- I expect that they're going to do something on that.、Uh, the、uh, I also expect them to maybe、uh, to make this coordination between uh, different uh, this bureaucrat- bureaucratic actors, you know, between uh, the functional uh, uh, the units and those. Uh, lo- the territorial governments more uh, uh, smooth, uh, uh, smooth and more effective.、Uh, so you know, there's some tinkering. Uh, uh, indeed, will be expected. There was a great piece in China File、uh, by Taisu Zhang, who's at Yale University, a very very smart、uh, scholar on on China. He was talking about the, what you had just observed. Uh, about how there is not anything resembling a crisis of legitimacy at the center. In fact, there's this tendency to see the center as relatively blameless and to put sort of the blame on lower level, on local authorities.、Uh, this is、mm-hmm. consistent, you know. I mean, I think everyone who understands China knows there's this phenomenon whereby there's a greater level of trust extended to to Beijing than there is to local authorities. But it's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of Americans, for example, who tend to trust local government more than they do the federal government.、Uh, which is yeah, that's a very interesting comparison indeed.、Uh, you know, I、yeah. think uh, that uh, again under this、uh, some called the hierarchical legitimacy, right?、Uh, they trust the lo-、uh, the、uh, the central government more than the local government. So for now. Uh, the uh, the central government could、uh, demonstrate to the people you know, after January twenties, you know, they step in, you know, they、uh, fix this、uh, this mess you know, created by the local governments, you know, that、uh, they were decisive, you know, they were uh, uh, very uh, uh, the uh, uh, t- uh, willing to take it.、Uh, Uh, necessary steps, you know, that、uh, to fix the problem, to address the crises, and they also they can demonstrate they can、uh, win the war. You know that because、uh, uh, it's acute disease outbreak, right? <laughs> so it come and will go, right? No matter you take measures or not. Uh, it will go、uh, just as a matter of time, you know. So、uh, even though pr- President Xi you know, tie himself to、uh, the crises,、uh, the addressing the crisis by、uh, saying I'm in charge,、uh, that、uh, you know, seems to like、uh, be a risky、uh, step. But、uh, you know, I think eventually the, the parties will uh, he uh, and him. And he will、uh, model through the crises. So one very big difference between this outbreak and what happened in two thousand two, two thousand three with SARS was that SARS happened at a time before smartphones, before social media.、Uh, Chinese netizens still probably number 
only in the double-digit millions. I think I, I looked it up. It was about 85 million people around in the spring of 2003 when there was that outbreak. Uh, and of course, now there are 10 times that number of, of people online and you know, well over the ha- half of the population uh, now is online. What kind of a role has social media played both in keeping people informed, but also in spreading panic and spreading misinformation about, about the, the disease? Has the government been pretty careful in the way that it's calibrated uh, using social media, either uh, exercising censorship or utilizing social media as a tool for dissemination of information and opinion management during yeah, the post I, I, I think uh, they are indeed trying to make the, uh, the s- social media sort of more serving the needs of the party state. Uh, they uh, they realized that this the, the potential threats of the social media is now uh, just uh, hundreds of millions of people using them. For a time, and I, I think until now, they're still sort of like uh, just like uh, this inform in terms of information flow. It was like uh, uh, the tap water on and off, right? So I think it's now the on stage. Uh, the uh, you know people started to express themselves uh, and uh, their complaints, criticisms, you know, the sharing of these horrible stories. Why, you know, that uh, uh, I think for this this time, the government seems to be uh, willing to tolerate those uh, even those criticisms on social media. Uh, but uh, you know right. that it is also very clear. You know they are very cautious, right? So we already seen some of those uh, posts. You know that was considered probably too critical or too uh, uh, radical. Uh, re- immediately removed from uh, the uh, from online. Right. Especially just yesterday, there was a, seems to have been a really big crackdown. Uh, today we're recording on, no, on I the think sixth for uh, um, like a novel virus like this coronavirus right the, the people don't you know there's just a, so many uncertainties there so people naturally develop a, like uh, uh, this perception you know this is something that is truly dangerous so when they are doing any sort of so-called risk uh, analysis right they tend to exaggerate the threat uh, posed by an unknowing um, pathogen, then on one, you know, that actually a more dangerous, but, uh, you know, like a uh, uh, well-known uh, virus, you know, like a seasonal influenza, right? That they are actually, each year, uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of people probably died of this seasonal influenza, but nobody would consider this as a, uh, a you know, real like a security threat right uh, or would consider WHO would certainly would not consider that global health security challenge you know uh, but uh, for this virus you know because you know this uh, seem this pot- potentially life threatening because of all these uncertainties uh, we are uh, and also because they're really you know, we don't have effective treatments to that. Uh, no vaccines, you know, no effective treatments. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the, it is natural that people will 
develop all this fear and uh, panic uh, about this the uh, this outbreak, and that fear and panic then translated into uh, social. Uh, uh, distancing measures and also the, at the policy level, those response, you know, the uh, country started to evacuate citizens from China, you know, tighten the, uh, the entry uh, restrictions uh, uh, and uh, yeah, declaring you know, public health emergencies. You know, this uh, actually, they are, I th- response, in my opinion, actually is, should be considered like overreactions because uh, uh, their side effects could uh, be more than uh, what we uh, what uh, what are caused by the virus uh, itself. Uh, considering that uh, the fear could undermine the surge capacity that countries has in dealing with the virus. You know, there's a good example is the issue of the face masks, facial masks, right? Uh, so that facial mask, you said, this is the instrument to protect you, right, to, from uh, getting infected. But in the meantime, it is also a symbol of feel because you've seen all these people wearing masks it also you actually uh, reinforced that the, the feel of the, of the virus, and then all those uh, 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 you see more people were then rushed to buy those uh, the, the the face masks. Now in China, you cannot even find the face masks, and <laughs> right. in the U.S. now, right. like in Greater New York area, you know, you cannot even buy masks. Many of them were already bought by. Probably people who they, uh, uh, including American Chinese, who have uh, actually uh, shipped that back to China. <laughs> On the question of face masks, Yanzhong, how effective are they? From what I've been reading, they don't actually seem to be a very effective means of preventing transmission of the virus. I'm not a medical doctor, but I was told that the N95, uh, this the, and also this uh, surgical masks, you know, for ordinary people, uh, should be helpful. Uh, in uh, reducing the chances of getting infected. Um, although uh, I think uh, the, the, the question here is that uh, should we have, like, everybody wear masks? You know, like in China, they estimated that the demand for uh, the masks is like uh, 1.8 billion each day. Uh, but uh, the government, uh, the these factories only can pro- manufacture like twenty million a day. You know, so you have this huge imbalance, this gap between supply and demand, and uh, this is already having an impact. Where people uh, are questioning whether you know that uh, the uh, those workers when they're returning to work next week, right? Uh, where are they going to find the masks? You know. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, uh, if we, all these people get together, right, they, this actually only increase the chances of the spread of the virus if we don't have the masks. Yeah, yeah. So you were talking about some of the sort of the more extreme measures that some governments have taken uh, 
border closures and such. The WHO news conference referred to the same thing, talking, you know, very critical about some of the, the measures. What were they specifically talking about? Were they talking about border closure decisions or decisions like by, by the American Airlines, American, Delta, and United to cancel flights to China? Were they talking about evacuations of nationals? I, I'm curious what you, how you interpreted what they said at, at the, the My news understanding is that the WHO, uh, the Director General, when he was in Beijing, he said he didn't favor the approach of evacuating citizens from China. Uh, he, uh, and th- I believe that WHO is also not fearing uh, those uh, overreactions. Like, uh, you know, you only, if you only have two cases in your country, you declare a public emergency. You know, I think this is a case of overreaction. And all this uh, uh, actually caused this, this the, um, I actually considered uh, the uh, interruptions of trade and travel. You know, that uh, actually against the Article 43 of the uh, International Health Regulations, uh, which is a, uh, the, a international law that supposedly uh, is legally binding to all mm. the signatory nations. The Emergency Committee announcement from the World Health Organization on January 30 was criticized by some for not only declaring an emergency later than many had wished for, uh, but also for its praise, its rather fulsome praise of Beijing's handling of the crisis up to that date. What did you make of the WHO press conference? And what do you know about the process internally well, I think uh, they, they, they made the right decision of declaring it the public health emergency of international concern uh, because it's very clear, right, by last week, uh, those two criteria they used to uh, meet the, uh, the, uh, the, the requirements uh, for declaring a public health emergency of international concern have been, had been there. You know, it was, one condition was that uh, it posed a threat to other countries. And second, you know, that uh, uh, if this is a demonstrate the need you know, for international coordination. Uh, I think both conditions obviously were met. And uh, so WHO indeed did the right, uh, made the right move. Um, in terms of uh, praising Beijing for its uh, um, anti-virus efforts, I do, uh, to be fair, I, I believe uh, that the, uh, uh, the people, the Chinese people, uh, the, uh, especially uh, those people in, uh, in Hubei and in Wuhan in particular, uh, they deserve, I uh, think, uh, credit for uh, the sacrifice being made there. You know, this I'm not talking about also the heroism of the healthcare workers, all those things. Um, uh, their sacrifice not only for you know, the uh, uh, potentially um, speedy end of the uh, of the outbreak, but also I think helped us here uh, in the U.S. Right, because uh, uh, if this virus can be contained there, it means we are spared here. 
so uh, I do think the, the Chinese people, the Chinese government deserves some credit uh, for their uh, efforts to contain the virus, although you know, it's a different question you know, how effective these measures are. Hmm. Hmm. So, it's, it's interesting to talk to you right now because you are an expert on both international relations and on global health. So, you know, we've seen uh, varied responses to the outbreak of the coronavirus from, from different governments. You know, the U.S., Australia, India, they've all evacuated citizens and diplomats. Uh, but then you've got countries like Cambodia and Kenya refusing to bring people home. Cambodia's prime minister went so far as to say that they want students to stay there to share the happiness and the pain of the Chinese people, um, mm -hmm. which is interesting. It, it seems, to, it strikes me, maybe just on first blush, uh, and maybe with the exception of Japan, that that the responses of governments correspond to the state of their country's bilateral relations with China. So if they're friendly with China, the response has been not to evacuate, not to close borders. Uh, Russia may be a little different. They have closed the border. Mm -hmm. But uh, countries that are sort of given to hostility to China or to Chinese proxies like like Huawei, <laughs> they're, they're, they're responding very harshly. Do you think there is a purely political element well, to this? I think, first of all, if you uh, compare, you know, just to uh, examine all these responses at the international level, you know, I think this response is, you know, that, uh, um, you know, again, but it's driven by a fear uh, and this chaos um, caused by this, the... Uh, uh, driven by this fear in responding to the outbreak, highlight the importance of the WHO to play the leadership role in coordinating uh, effective international response. You know, yeah, yesterday, WHO was calling for more money uh, to support uh, this fight, uh, this war on the coronavirus, but I think it's uh, more important for WHO to demonstrate it has the capability to coordinate, you know, this international response, which is now becoming uh, so chaotic and uh, uh, itself could be uh, actually a disaster, you know, in terms of uh, impact on the uh, world economy and also international right. relations. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yanzhong, what do you think of the predictions by Zhong Nanshan and other Chinese CDC officials in regards to the virus peaking this week, February 8th? Do you think we will see a leveling out of transmission or will this continue to spread? And what should we expect in the coming weeks? I certainly hope that uh, he is uh, he's right. And uh, I think uh, the uh, rationale is that uh, the, um, core, the draconian measures were undertaken on January 23rd and the virus has an incubation period up to 14 days. You know, so by February 8th, you would expect that those people who are supposed to show uh, the symptoms you know, should already be uh, they're, uh, they're showing the symptoms and they will be uh, then uh, found by the government and treated. Right, receive treatment. You know, so uh, I th you are going to see at that time, you know, at least the plateau of transmission, if not the drop of the cases. 
right? Uh, but uh, if you look at the, just the national level data, you know, we don't see that p- plateau of transmission. And Wuhan certainly, while the situation is, the mm. cases continue to increase very uh, uh, rapidly, and there seems to be, uh, we haven't seen uh, the light at the end of the tunnel uh, at all. And in fact, probably the worst is yet to come. Um, but if you look at the cases uh, in other provinces, right, uh, the confirmed cases continue to rise. Uh, but if you look at the, the, not the total number, but actually the each uh, the uh, the uh, confirmed cases uh, the for each day, uh, the and also the the suspected cases. It seems that uh, it is. Uh, we don't see any significant drop, but uh, it appears to be heading uh, in this direction of a plateau. Uh, uh, and I, uh, although that pattern remains uh, not very clear. Hmm. Hmm. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Uh, meanwhile. Yinzhou Huang, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this fascinating discussion. Uh, I know I, I certainly have learned an awful lot, and I hope our listeners benefit from this as well. Uh, let's move on now to our recommendations section. But first, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the SupChina and Seneca network, the very best way that you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. It is just fantastic. So sign up and spread the word. Meanwhile, stay tuned for next week's show where we're going to be featuring the wonderful China in Africa podcast by Eric Olander and Kobus van Staden. Uh, another American-South African collaboration, which have you know, proven to be successful, huh, Jeremy? <laughs> uh, anyway, they, they're going to be joining the Seneca Network. They have joined the Seneca Network recently. It has been running for as long as Seneca has since 2010. It has long ranked among my very, very favorite shows, certainly among my very favorite China shows. I just can't tell you how thrilled I am to be welcoming them as part of our network. So I hope you, you listen to the show and sign up, subscribe to it, and make it a part of your, your regular weekly listing. Okay, on to recommendations. Jeremy, it is our tradition that you should begin, and so start us off. What do you have for us? I'm going to recommend three pieces from SubChina today uh, by three talented writers. Firstly, Kenyan students in Wuhan plead for evacuation by April Jewell. Um, and then a terrific feature... Chinese Moms in America's Illicit Massage Parlors by Tung Chan. And finally, our Xinjiang columnist Darren Beiler has written a very sad piece on the disappearance of Perhat Tursun, one of the Uyghur world's greatest authors. Okay, excellent, excellent, very good. Yan Zhong, you have something for us, right? Uh, I'm, going to, like to uh, I'm going to recommend two movies. Uh, the... Uh, not uh, oh, <laughs> the uh, new movies. There's this movie uh, that was, uh, I think, released 1995 called Outbreak, uh, featuring uh, Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo. Uh, uh, talking oh, yeah. about this, like, uh, a man-made virus, you know, they was uh, smuggled from Africa, you know, to a small town in the United States and then caused an outbreak. Then, you know, the U.S. government has decided where, uh, 
you know, they actually first they decide to quarantine the town, but then because the virus just spread so fast, they were considering whether to eliminate that, that town, you know, that uh, using the uh, uh, bomb <laughs> to el- uh, big bomb <laughs> to uh, eliminate that town, you know. So this faced all this kind of very difficult ethical, you know, and uh, decisions uh, to make, you know. So that is one. Uh, if you want to stay awake at night, I would uh, use the <laughs> recommend this movie called Twenty Eight Days. You know that uh, uh, was very scary. Oh, yeah. Although it was like a uh, scientifically seems to be uh, not possible, uh, but it is very scary. It talks about a very dangerous virus. You know that uh, could you know like uh, you, when you get infected, you immediately get crazy, uh, and this is becoming all this causing all this chaos. You know, like uh, the breakdown of the civilization. Uh, the civilization uh, seems to be at the. Uh, themselves is, is the civilization is under threat because of that virus. Uh, so that is my recommendation. Yeah, one of the great zombie apocalypse movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. Twenty eight days later and outbreak. Uh, very <laughs> cheerful viewing for. <laughs> I've seen them both. They're really terrific movies. I, I really enjoyed them. Thanks, Yanjong. Uh, my recommendation for this week is a really smart New York Times op-ed by Maria Repnikova, who's been on our program before. Uh, the piece is called The Subtle Muckrakers of the Coronavirus Epidemic, and it looks at the role that investigative journalism in China, magazines like Caixin and Caijing, uh, and yes, they still exist, uh, the, the role that they've played uh, and how they've been given Meaningful, very limited, and I'd say still very constricting space, uh, especially in the last couple of days. We've seen a lot of these muckrakers, uh, not not the big magazines, but even smaller pieces uh, that have been critical about the, the response from the Wuhan government uh, have been taken off offline. But uh, it's a topic that Maria has written about, and she, she's talked about it with us on our show in February 2018. Great, great piece. Definitely check it out. Uh, Yen Zhong, thank you so much again for, for, for taking the time to join us. I know My you pleasure. must be extremely busy. Uh, thanks also to your CFR colleagues for their help in making this happen from the thank studio. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I will let them know. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate that too. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Jeremy, man, great to talk to you as always. So nice to have you on the show after such a long hiatus. Thanks, Kaiser. And we promise Jeremy's going to be back like way more regularly from now on after this whole run of California shows runs, you know, where you're going to you're going to hear his his delightful, unplaceable accent more and more on this program. Thank you. Great. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. The Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our expanding network. Watch this space for future announcements of new shows coming soon. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.